so here we are on um, Boston Faith and Justice. Let's talk Faith and Justice podcast. And Maeve and I um, are here to have a little chat just before we uh, send you off to the interview that Ivy did with um, someone from the Mass Coalition Against Gun Violence. Um, we think that's going to be a really interesting conversation, and we're excited to share that with the community. So, Maeve, we thought we'd talk today about what we're reading, which when you suggested that, I was kind of very excited because I'm always loving to talk about books. So what are you reading currently? Yes. So right now, I just started yesterday a book called Educated, which I think is decently popular. Um, It's by Tara Westover. I'm about 100 pages in. It's been very interesting so far, just talking about her experience growing up in a very fundamentalist Mormon family in the middle of Idaho. And so some of the stories that she's been telling so far are just like so... I've never heard of anything like that and this living experience. And I think where the book is going, Elizabeth, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but just the importance of education because she ends up going to college, which is not necessarily what her father wanted because he thought this is all the government interference and all that kind of stuff. So I'm excited to see where it goes. Obviously, she wrote a book, so she did get a college education, but I think that it's it's really good so far. So far, I would recommend it. Um, But it's been a nice break for me too because I do a lot of very academic reading during the year. So I'm trying to do some more enjoyment reading over the summer. So this is a book that I recently picked up. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah. Sometimes school reading can like just bleed into everything. So it's nice to have a book that's like pretty far removed from that. Although obviously there's still a lot to learn from almost any book. Yes. I really enjoyed that book. I probably read it a couple of years ago now, but it's one of those that like I still occasionally think about Sometimes it's just what to me were some horrifying stories that she shared. I'm like, wow, I can't believe that happened. And you're still alive because of just some of the risks that were taken within the family. Right. And then, yeah, like you said, there's, it's like this different culture, but like, also I feel like there's threads of stuff you can recognize just in family or education or community. So I like that, but yeah, I, I think not like this is a spoiler or anything, but I think she ends up getting a PhD at Oxford. Um, Something like that. I saw Harvard on there somewhere, I think. Yeah. Yeah. She definitely goes to. So I think the story ends sort of just with her wrapping up like an exit from some of the more harmful aspects of community. But um, yeah, I think that's her. I, she it was definitely one of those where I Wikipedia her maybe like halfway. Through, <laughs> I'm like, I need to know what's going on with this person. Like, where is she now? Um, and she's so young. I mean, to me, um, she's probably about 10 years younger than me. So I just found that really interesting. So, yeah, that's a good one. Um, OK, I was sharing when we were. <clears throat> talking earlier that I'm reading way too many books at once. I have like a stack that I'm like going back and forth, which I don't know. Sometimes I feel like there's value in that. And sometimes I'm like, pick a book. Um, Cause then I'm also listening to a couple. So one that I just am just finishing is called um, the civil wars theological crisis. So maybe this is where school reading bleeds into other, <laughs> reading. but it was one where for my um, history of the evangelicalism class, we were assigned a chapter And I just found it so compelling that I was like, I want to read this whole thing eventually, not while I was still in the class. So that was one of the first books I picked up post-graduation. And it's by Mark Knoll, who's a pretty well-known historian of Christianity in general and evangelicalism in particular. But one of the things I'm finding fascinating about it is as he goes over sort of the the deep biblical crisis that the Civil War provoked in that both sides were using the Bible to um, advance their position, but the abolitionist position kind of had a harder time because there wasn't, there's no explicit condemnation of slavery in the Bible, right? So it's like, it was this crisis of like literalism, um, infallibility, all of the sort of the fundamental ways we look at the Bible that came into focus and created a lot of factions. 
So I'm finding that history interesting. Um, but also this idea of like, how do we perceive the Bible? Is it is it a guidebook, a handbook for life? Or is it a story of who God is and his will for the world? Obviously, the way I pose that, it's clear where I land on that. <laughs> but um, it's just such an interesting way to to see the question. Like, I think that that's a universal question, right, throughout Christian history. But like to see it through the lens of the Civil War, I find that super interesting and tragic, um, obviously, anytime you're dealing with the Civil War. So that's one that I'm reading or may have just finished. I think I'm on, I'm in the epilogue. So yeah. What else you got? Are you, are you, I think you're reading a couple like me. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm working on a thesis at school, so I am reading a ton of books in that sort of sphere of political theory. So lots of stuff on community and how to effectively deal with pluralism, whether that be religious pluralism or all other sorts of uh, aspects of diversity. So that's been my more like academic side. But then I don't know exactly what books I've read so far this summer, but I've been trying to branch out and read some like fantasy or maybe a little bit of romance here and there because I'm just, I'm trying to give my brain a break. So (laughs) that has been I'm trying to pick from different genres, not just political theory, which is mostly what I do. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I'm I don't read enough fiction. Like I am always like again, I have that stack of books and not any of them are fiction. But then when I stumble upon that great recommendation of a fiction book, I can get so immersed in a world that it mm-hmm. is. It's like it's like a it's a break for your brain, but you're still so engaging. Like it's yeah. I, I like did that. also read um, John Mark Comer's book, Live No Lies. I read that just at the beginning of the summer when I got home. That book was so good just talking about our culture and the culture of just, I don't know, not disbelief, but just how we've become so disconnected from one another and the importance of community. And I thought it was a really compelling book, especially for someone who understands the theology and the philosophy aspect of it, because he does write definitely more in that vein. But it was, I really recommend, he also wrote The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which is another book that I absolutely loved and was life-changing. So I highly recommend looking into his his books. Oh, okay. Yeah. I remember you mentioning that book maybe like a month ago or so, and I actually had an Audible credit. So I was like, I'm going to get that. So I did. <laughs> It's sitting in my queue. Maybe it's like on deck or whatever after the three I'm doing right now. But I, you, you had talked about it that way. So yeah, all right. So I'm interested in engaging with that one. Um, that made me think of one of the other ones I'm reading, which is Brene Brown's Rising Strong. I similarly, I love all of her speaking and her writing. And so this is one that I read years ago and I just felt like it was a time where I might need it again. And I just really appreciate the way she talks about vulnerability. This book is very much about rumbling with vulnerability. That's what she often talks about rumbling. So, and she's really uh, very vulnerable herself and talking about ways in which she's wrestled with being vulnerable and really practical. And like, here's what it might look like when you're telling yourself a story about something instead of confronting something head on, instead of communicating and just that the stories we tell ourselves, that's what really sticks with me about a lot of the stuff she says that like, we often make up these stories in our head about what's going on. And we don't actually take the time to either be vulnerable or brave and pushing into a space to find out if our story is correct, which usually it's not fully correct because we've constructed it all on our own. So I I appreciate that about her. And the other one I'm reading is Michelle Obama's new book, um, The Light We Carry, which I'm only about a hundred pages in, but so far I'm finding it really compelling. She's a really good writer and she talks a lot about how she dealt with the pandemic um, and some of the crises that that um, instigated for her and the ways she's dealing with it, which definitely involves knitting, which is not something (laughs) 
do, but she makes it sound really good. <laughs> so I'm like, I might want to take up knitting as a way to um, process anxiety and stress. It yeah, not a bad idea. Yeah. So, yeah. So those are, those are a couple. I mean, I really have a couple more, but I won't go into all of them. I'm like rereading some books on American history. Cause that's like almost like my background noise. So those are good when I can get them from the library for free. Um, yeah. They're on the, their audible app or just borrowing. So I can be like, well, they're like old friends. All right. Well, that's cool. So obviously we have some books we recommend and um, we clearly like to read and hope that that's helpful. And now we're just going to send you over to Ivy's interview with Angelica from the Mass Coalition. Welcome, everybody. I am so incredibly thankful for this opportunity to interview Angelica, excuse me, um, of Massachusetts Coalition to Prevent Gun Violence. This is our 11th episode for the Let's Talk Faith and Justice podcast. And so we will kick it off by allowing Angelica to introduce yourself. Um, And we do have an icebreaker question that we've been throwing around for some episodes, which is very interesting. Interesting. Um, any posters that you had on your wall as a kid or a teen and why? Yeah, thank you, Ivy. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here as well, too. And I'm so glad to be able to be speaking with you today and then also for the audience to be hearing from us today as well. Um, again, as mentioned, my name is Angelica Fonts. I am currently the director of organizing at the coalition. Uh, I've been in this role for about two and a half years. Um, it's a great place to be. Uh, to answer your opening question, you know, I kind of think of two posters that were predominantly on my walls as a young person. Um, I'll kind of touch on as a kid. And then as I started to hit into a teenager. Um, and for me, one of the things that was super, super important to me as uh, as a child growing up was, you know, Disney, right? And the Disney franchise and what all those movies had looked like. And so when I think of a, an original movie that I had every single poster for, it was the Cheetah Girls, ironically enough. Um, and the reason stemming behind that too, right, is because they definitely had, um, a diverse group of young women who were featured in that film when you think about the core characters. Um, and so actually being able to see folks that looked like myself, uh, or, you know, came from communities similar to mine was definitely something that was super important growing up. Um, and so I really clung to that film and that entire franchise of the Cheetah Girls. Um, so that was something I always held near and dear, Another one that I can think about, especially when I started kind of turning into my teenage years, um, that was super prevalent for me at the time, was One Direction as well. Um, I know that they had their their very big craze in the early 2010s, um, where, you know, most teenage girls at the time were were pretty involved into that. Um, And, you know, I was definitely in on that one. And I think what kind of sparked that one or for me to be so heavenly involved with that is because I also have always had an immense interest in learning more about other cultures, um, learning more about different countries and kind of, uh, you know, when I look back at it now, especially after, you know, being in the the work field for several years now, but, uh, you know, having graduated undergrad with a cultural anthropology degree, you know, it all kind of ties in for me um, where that interest had lied in terms of wanting to explore different, um, you know, communities, countries, learn more about others and their cultures. Um, and so it just all really tied in for me there. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. And it's very, it's a question that Elizabeth had originally brought up and utilizing it has allowed us to, you know, see the different things that we may have had, you know, on our wall as kids, but how it shares like our own personal story. And so I appreciate um, you sharing that. 
can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up where you are today as a as a community organizer with um, the Massachusetts Coalition to Prevent Gun Violence? Yeah, and I'm happy to talk about that in a little bit of two parts, um, you know, kind of why this issue of violence prevention, but also the interest, um, you know, in general of like social justice and the work that nonprofits do. Um, and so prior to working with the coalition, I actually did a lot of direct service roles, um, working specifically with young people from ages preschool up to high school. And those roles predominantly um, focused on educational access. Um, mm-hmm. Thank for me, something that also was at the forefront was my community. So I'm from Brockton, Massachusetts, if folks are familiar. And so with each of those roles, um, I was able to engage with young people from the Brockton community. Um, and so that was also something that was super prevalent to me, especially thinking about some of the inequities that we face here in my community. Um, on the other end, when I think of the issue specifically of gun violence, right? So that kind of shaped me into wanting to be in this type of work, work that addresses those social inequities. Um, But gun violence specifically, is just always something that's kind of been constant in my life, unfortunately. So whether that's from, um, you know, direct impact from my family members, I have an older brother who was impacted by gun violence, um, who's still here with us today. Uh, This past year, I've also had a younger cousin be impacted by gun violence. Um, And so these are things that are unfortunately been a constant within my own community of Brockton. Um, And again, not to just name that as, you know, we're the only community that experiences that brunt, but it's really the BIPOC communities across the Commonwealth that are also seeing that brunt as well, right? Um, So, you know, to name a few, we've got like the the Springfield, the New Bedfords, the Worcesters, um, and so forth that really experienced that brunt. And it wasn't just you know, again, within my personal life and in that community, um, you know, obviously, as I've been in this role, I've learned more about the violence that impacts other places. But it was also um, an undergraduate, in my undergraduate career, I made several different friends, um, you know, some from the Boston area, some from New York, New Jersey, and so forth. And it was something that was constant around our entire lives and how we were impacted. You know, I had many friends who just about every month were posting remembrance posts for some of their friends that they had lost throughout the years. Um, And that was always something that just really stuck with me on. um, You know, it's unfortunate to say, um, but unfortunately for for folks from community like ours, it can be almost normalized, right? That we're experiencing these types of loss. Um, And it's just something that keeps going. And I really wanted to figure out how can we work against that, right? Because it's not normal. Uh, that our young children are dying and dying due to gun violence, something that is, you know, preventable. And so really trying to figure out how can I get into a role um, that will allow me to address that issue, but also at the core held similar values to my own, um, which is why I enjoy the coalition, because we really do have that um, survivor-led, focused, and driven work that we do. Mm. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And there's a lot of similarity um, in our backgrounds as well. And it's interesting you sharing your own personal story of living in in Brockton. I was, um, you know, lived in Brockton only until I was two years old. Um, And due to my parents' divorce, we relocated to Milton where my grandparents um, resided. And I often think about the um, privilege that you could say I had um, in being raised in in Milton and by a predominantly you know wealthy um, family and see the the differences and often think about you know what if we didn't move um, to Milton and how would my life be different and also 
you know, recognizing that because we did experience racism as, you know, I was raised by my single white mother um, and being the only Black family on the street, the differences that I saw growing up um, and the opportunities that were, you know, afforded to me, but how that led me into social justice and being able to utilize my voice and be an advocate for others. And so I followed in my, you know, my parents' footsteps of working in human services and being able to work in various different capacities with systems involved youth. And I have found the work to be um, very transformational. Um, There's a lot of joy that I experience in the work and it's definitely the young people that keep me there on a daily basis. Um, But how much trauma and how much pain um, comes with it as well. And the fact that you had mentioned, you know, it's not normal. I know there's a film, you know, that focuses on Boston that I believe your organization was recently involved in. This ain't normal. Um, and and how sometimes we can become numb to the topic and seeing, you know, so many different posts about, um, you know, friends or family, loved ones, those in the community that have been impacted by gun violence. My fiance as well is a, a survivor of gun violence. And so it's something that is very near and dear to my heart. Um, so I just wanted to say thank you, you know, for your work in, in this field, um, because it, it definitely takes a village. And so I'm just thankful um, for what you do and, and your passion that leads you to, to this work. Um, so considering your role um, with the coalition, what does community mean to you? Yeah, I also want to thank you for your work and also thank you for sharing as well um, before I dive into that one. Um, But when I think of community, you know, not only is it that sense of support you get from those around you or the larger groups of um, people who are supportive and loving you, but I often think immediately of that saying, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. Um, And also thinking back to the village that I had growing up. Um, And so really thinking about the way in which folks are able um, to really work in unity Um, how there's so much power in the people itself within a community and how we're able to assist and uplift one another. Um, And so when I think about that, and especially when I conduct the work of organizing at the coalition, those are some of the things that I keep in mind, right? And kind of keeping those core values of how can you continue to push that mutual aid amongst community members. Um, And again, it doesn't have to just be within, you know, your hometown. Um, Again, because we are a state entity, that's something I've been able to help Um, and be a part of uh, creating is that sense of community in a broader sense as well, right? And so, you know, not only do we have it in the several different communities throughout the Commonwealth, but even that survivor community as well and being able to to be a part of it. Um, And again, like I mentioned, making sure that we're able to support, empower, uplift those folks who are around us as well. Yeah. And so speaking of that, and I love that you say, you know, not just like your neighborhood or where you from as where you are from as your community, but just those in which you're connected to and that larger, you know, network. How and this isn't something that we had previously, you know, discussed, but just thinking in this conversation of how did, you know, the impacts of COVID affect the work that you are doing in in building that community? 
Yeah, thank you. That's actually a perfect question. Um, right. And so when I immediately started with the coalition, and that was back in 2021, um, it was definitely one of the challenges I noticed within the first six months of my role, right? Um, especially when you're trying to connect with folks via Zoom. This again, this was when we were predominantly virtual um and trying to engage in communities that I even myself had never been to. Um, and so what it really took at first was a lot of um cold calling, that slow relationship building with getting to know folks, right? Um, one thing that, you know, folks always kind of mentioned to me in community, and it's one of those things that at first I didn't think much about it. And one day I kind of sat and I was like, oh, well, that's just, you know, that's nice. Like, to me, it didn't mean anything. But to the folks, it meant so much was that, you know, people tell me all the time, like, you always show up, you're always here, or they're appreciative that I'm able to, to help be in support of their initiative. And that was definitely one of the biggest things, especially with organizing virtually, is that I didn't stop showing up, right? Um, so whether if I didn't know the community, the folks in that community, or, you know, for example, I'm thinking um, in the Springfield area, they have several community-based initiatives around, um, you know, nonviolence and gun violence prevention specifically. Um, and, you know, having never been to Springfield at the time and then not knowing those folks, my main thing was, well, I'm always going to show up. I'll always be able to to talk and, you know, build those connections. And that's how that continued to grow from there, where the coalition was able to kind of further some of those virtual, sorry, those virtual um, organizing efforts is that we actually have an aspect of our leadership team that's a little bit unique in comparison to some other nonprofits. So not only do we have a board of directors, we have something we call the community council, which is about 15 to 20 individuals all from diverse communities across the Commonwealth. Um, you know, we've got survivors, hospital-based workers, street outreach workers who are included in that mix. Um, and these are the folks that we bring all of our streamlining and messaging to. And so when I had kind of expressed some of these challenges to this group, um, we were really trying to be innovative and think about how could we expand that. And that's when the concept of utilizing Instagram Live had kind of came up. Um, and again, to kind of play on what I had mentioned earlier, we had that conversation about village building. And so what does that mean? Um, and so what we had ended up titling the Instagram Live is calling on our village. Again, recognizing that there's folks who have been doing this work for decades in community, right? Um, again, some of them might be smaller grassroots movements. Um, and recognizing and acknowledge that oftentimes we see some of these larger, we uh, at the coalition can sometimes call them like legacy organizations that may receive, you know, a, a vast majority of the funds and community um, and items of that nature. But how can we really drill down and uplift those voices that may not often be heard? Um, and so that's the birth of our Instagram live. We, one of our first couple of episodes, we were immediately connected with, um, you know, a group of women in the New Bedford area that had wanted to talk about some of the work that they were doing around system involved youth. Um, it kind of started off of them really just wanting to protect their sons from some of, um, the racist systems that were occurring within their community and wanting to figure out how they could do that. And so we're able to provide that platform. It's extended to include member organizations. Uh, you know, we've had several other different community partners that have been able to utilize the platform and share. Um, it's something that we're super excited for folks listening now to keep uplifting, especially into the next year as the coalition is actually expanding in our staffing capacity. Um, and so that's something I have really high hopes for that in terms of 
um, kind of keeping up with that virtual organizing, right? Because again, we can't be everywhere at once. Um, and especially when we think about location. So it's really great to have that option to, you know, as I mentioned, we can connect with folks in Pittsfield and have their voices be heard or New Bedford and have their voices be heard um, and not have to be there physically present. Yeah. And, you know, it's only by divine timing, I guess, that that question had popped into my mind because, you know, we at BFJN as going through, you know, COVID, we're trying to figure out, you know, how to still have that community, how to still build relationships and uplift voices, as you mentioned, which is really, really important to us. And, you know, it started by uncomfortable conversations and, you know, that's what's what we're doing on Facebook Live um, based on various different topics. And then that, you know, evolved into where we are now with the podcast. And so it definitely requires innovation um, and the relentless efforts, right, to continue and in, in and going and showing up and doing all that we can and knowing that the work is is very important and we can't stop. Um, and so we're often, you know, stretched thin sometimes in, in the work that we do based upon our heart or especially with, you know, working across the whole Commonwealth. Do you, so a few questions popping into mind, do you all have specific days or times that you go um, on live on Instagram? Yeah, so I will be transparent with that, right? So again, this was kind of one of those innovative ideas that came from community council, me really and the challenges that I was having, connecting virtually with organizing. And so at the coalition, we're a small but mighty team of three, including myself. <laughs> we have our executive director, Zachary, and my coworker, who is our policy director, Emily Popke. And so this was that aspect of the work that I was kind of holding. But again, um, you know, small but mighty senior wearing many, many hats. And so where we were having some difficulty was trying to figure out how can we have a more consistent schedule. And so, um, you know, at the very first, we were very ambitious. And so it started off to be biweekly. Then from there, it kind of went monthly. Um, and it's something that we would love to really kind of invest a bit more into. And again, as I had mentioned, we're, we're in the process of expanding our staffing, both with a full-time position and an intern. And so, I'm hoping that within, you know, the next three to six months that we're really going to have a more robust lineup um, and regular timing of that. So, again, as I mentioned, it was a bit we're a bit more sporadic over the time. So we've been doing mm -hmm. that for a bit of, about a year as best as I could to uplift that work. Um, but again, as we transition to having more in-person opportunities or in-person meetings, the work I've been doing with young people, I just haven't been able to, to lend the time there to be super consistent. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And as you mentioned, for those that are listening as well, opportunities where you're expanding um, capacity. So if anyone's listening that's interested, can definitely reach out to you um, or others at the coalition directly as those um, opportunities become, uh, you know, as we become aware of those opportunities. Um, and another thing that I was thinking just as you were speaking, given that this is a um, you know, a, a statewide initiative um, coalition that you are working for, do you have specific areas or towns and cities that you focus on predominantly? Yes, I would say no. Um, we, we try to make sure that our, our work is really spread across the Commonwealth. Um, the one thing that I will also address is that we don't necessarily provide direct services. So our approach is through um, four different means. So we utilize advocacy primarily through legislative means where we advocate 
um, for a series of budget line items, but also legislative priorities that address root causes. Um, I won't list them all in depth right now, just for the sake of time, but for this session, we're looking specifically at the guns themselves, but then also looking at, um, you know, our young people and how can we best assist them. So we have some juvenile justice bills, and then we have a bill centered around youth aging out of foster care and providing a universal basic income. Um, again, keeping that concept of when our young people have what they need to be safe and well, the outcomes will be reflective. We also utilize public education and awareness, community organizing where I get to come in, and then member support. We have roughly about 126 member organizations, and so making sure we build some of those um, relationships. And then, um, like I said, we have relationships across the Commonwealth. If I had to say maybe where some are the the strongest or a bit stronger, they'd probably be those top municipalities that experience the burn of gun violence. So again, like the the Brockton, the Boston, the Springfield, Worcester, Bedford, um, mm -hmm. just to name a couple off the top of my head. Yeah. And it's interesting because with the work that I do with Straight Ahead Ministries, that's primarily where our offices are are located as well. You know, Boston, uh, Fall River, Worcester, Springfield, and the Lawrence and, and, and Lynn area as well. Um, I feel like you and I could just talk for, for days. Um, can you share a little bit about how your faith impacts your ideas and your interactions with the coalition? Yeah, I'm happy to provide a little bit of context. And so um, I grew up as a seven-day Adventist, so I attended church fairly regularly um, up until about my late teen years with my aunt. And so I learned quite a bit, you know, from being a part of that and to, you know, being immersed really in her household. It was definitely one of my favorite places to be as a young person. And so um, when I think about that, the biggest thing that stands for me is, again, how we treat one another. Um, and so that's something that I constantly bring to the work that's strong. Um, moral background that I've developed as a young person uh, through my faith. And so really making sure that we meet people where they're at, right? Um, mm -hmm. you know, not having any reservations about interacting with everyone, giving that equal treatment to all the folks that we're involved with. Um, and so that's definitely something that I would say is one of the biggest pieces where I can see that it impacts my work. Um, I think, you know, growing up in a community that I did, growing up with, um, you know, the the family setting and things like that also play a hand in the way that, um, you know, to provide that equal treatment, right? Again, like I mentioned, when we're in those communities who face the brunt, um, I can really meet those folks where they're at because I live that same life as them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and so really just making sure we can build those connections there. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that as we last last night, although, you know, we're recording in May, but this episode will air in June. Um, but for our book club for the month of May, we read a book um, by Kevin Nye, Grace Can Lead Us Home, A Christian Call to End Homelessness. And it talked a lot about the power of connection and building relationships and how, you know, we are to see each other on an equal playing field um, and having that dignity and respect and treating everybody the same and being able to, you know, navigate spaces and conversations, not seeing ourselves on a higher level um, and showing up and caring for others wherever they are at in that we are all worthy of that care um, no matter what, you know, we may be facing. And so there's a lot of um, similarity just in the, in the conversations that we've been having with BFJN and the various different community spaces that we have. Um, so as we 
start to wrap up the conversation. Is there anything that you would like to share that would be helpful for our audience to understand about um, preventing gun violence or how we can join this important work? Yeah, I'm happy to provide some insight there. And I think one of the biggest things um, is that a reminder that this is a public health issue. And so making sure that we all um, have that understanding of what that lens and approach can look like. Um, but also that gun violence is preventable, right? Again, as we had uh, alluded to earlier, is that for some communities, um, unfortunately, because of the brunt that we experience, it can be sort of normalized. Um, and many folks may not, um, you know, they may be at that point where they don't believe that change can happen. And so mm-hmm. kind of giving that reminder that we can prevent this, but we have to focus our efforts on those root causes. Um, so thinking about how can we unpack and address systemic racism, economic uh, disparities, um, you know, all those other different inequities that are facing our communities to make sure that we're addressing those issues. I would also push folks to make sure that, um, you know, we're holding a compassionate and trauma-informed lens for all types of violence, um, something that through our public education and awareness that I often dispel or, uh, you know, I do a lot of presentations with young people is that, you know, one of the things I ask is, you know, what type of gun violence do you tend to see most? A lot of the times I get young people who are talking about, um, you know, school shootings or some of these other mass shootings that are often really publicized through the media. Um, And what I always do is a gentle pushback as well and that reminder um, on some of those harmful narratives that are in the media. And then also that gun violence is so comprehensive, right? You know, we have firearm suicides, which are included in that, community-based violence, police-based violence, um, unintentional shootings, you know, the homicides as well. So making sure that all of those things, domestic violence, um, folks are keeping that in mind when we're talking about gun violence and holding that compassion for all types of violence, um, including for the victims, perpetrators, family members, community members, right? Because the the trauma doesn't just stop, uh, you know, where the bullet ends, it really ripples into the community. And so kind of keeping that um, and holding that centered in the conversations that we do have. Yeah. And you said something very powerful, that trauma doesn't stop where the bullet ends and the ripple effects that it does have on the community, whether it's the direct, you know, families that were involved either on the victim or the perpetrator side, or just those that are in the neighborhood and how we are to have compassion and operate in light and love and and be aware of the the larger issue. Like you said, it's not just in gang violence or community violence, but suicides and domestic violence. Um, and how that all ties together and addressing those root problems. So I, I really just thank you and appreciate, you know, the wealth of wisdom, knowledge, and, and passion that you have for this work. Um, I'm so very thankful for this conversation and everything that you have been able to bring to the table in just a short time. Um, but to also know that there are various different ways in which we can engage and stay in tune um, with the work that you're doing, with the opportunities that are becoming available as you expand capacity. Um, So thank you very much for this conversation. Yeah, and I want to extend the same to you. Thank you for having me here today. It's been wonderful to connect. I do have one last shameless plug. I had forgotten to mention it prior to the response. But yeah, one of the best ways for folks to be tuned into the work that we're doing, um, you know, on almost every social media platform at M-A-C-O-P-G-V. 
Um, and so for folks to, to plug in there, we also have a newsletter where we send out action alerts. So for folks who are wanting to take um, more action against the issue of gun violence, uh, to stay in the loop there. And, uh, you know, we're happy to have you join us. Yes. Thank you so much. I greatly appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. You too.